Hey there, welcome to Livewire. I'm your host, Luke Burbank. All right, this is going to be a special episode of the show. We are celebrating National Poetry Month because it turns out some of the most memorable moments in Livewire history have involved poets and their poetry. Poets like Roger Reeves, who once joined us in a hotel room in Austin for one of the weirdest live shows we've ever done. We're also going to hear from Oregon Poet Laureate Anis Mojgani, who's going to swing by to perform some of his work. And then Franny Choi will explain how she turned Twitter harassment into some very powerful poetic material. Plus, Derek C. Brown and the Helio sequence will marry some poetry and music, which you don't want to miss. Stick around. The Livewire Poetry Special is just around the corner. It gets started right after this. I'm Alex Schwartz. I'm Nomi Fry. I'm Vincent Cunningham, and this is Critics at Large, a New Yorker podcast for the culturally curious. Each week, we're going to talk about a big idea that's showing up across the cultural landscape, and we'll trace it through all the mediums we love. Books, movies, television, music, art. And I always want to talk about celebrity gossip, too. Of course. We hope you'll join us for new episodes each Thursday. Follow Critics at Large today, wherever you get podcasts. This episode of LiveWire is brought to you by Progressive Insurance. Whether you love true crime or comedy, celebrity interviews or news, you can call the shots on what's in your podcast queue. And guess what? Now you can call them on your auto insurance, too, with the Name Your Price tool from Progressive. It works just the way it sounds. You tell Progressive how much you want to pay for car insurance, and they'll show you coverage options that fit your budget. Get your quote today at Progressive.com to join the over 28 million drivers who trust Progressive. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. Price and coverage match limited by state law. Hey, Elena. Luke, it is no fluke. <laughs> you are on my juke box of uh-huh. live wire, sire. Wow, that's <laughs> really um, avant-garde. Thanks. <laughs> but it's very, you know what, it's, it's very uh, on topic for us this week because, of course, we're celebrating National Poetry Month mm. on the show. So we've got some, some poetry that might even exceed that. That you just did. <laughs> you think? Coming up. <laughs> First, though, we have to play a little station location identification examination. Uh, you ready? Yeah. Okay. I'm going to give you some info about a place where Livewire is on the radio. See if you can figure out the spot that I'm talking about. This city is the birthplace of Gwendolyn Brooks, who was <gasps> the first African-American to win the Pulitzer Prize. Uh, and the first African-American woman inducted into the American Academy of Arts and Letters. Um, although... Uh, he's not commonly associated with this city. Langston Hughes also spent his early youth in this place. Huh. Uh, Gwendolyn Brooks is one of my favorite poets of all time, hands down, final answer. But I'm sorry to say, I don't know. Midwest. Midwest. Um, the place where Toto and Dorothy aren't anymore. Kansas. And then a city in Kansas... It's not the city where my mother was born, Topeka, Kansas, is it? It's Topeka, Kansas, (laughs) Elena, where we are broadcast on K-A-N-U radio. We should have put, as the third clue, it's also your mother's birthplace. (laughs) I think that's where she was born, either Topeka or Kansas City, Kansas. She'll write an email if we're wrong. Oh, yes, she will. (laughs) Shout out to everyone 
listening in Topeka, Kansas on KANU. All right. Should we get on with the show? Let's do it. All right. Take it away. From PRX, it's... This week, poets. Roger Reeves. I think the poet is there to make a good sound at the end of the day, right? They're there to make beauty. And Franny Choi. Encountering a feeling in the poem, encountering the feeling in yourself, and then asking the question like, how did we get here? Plus, Oregon Poet Laureate, Anis Mojgani. The land of the Midnight Farm, it is a strange and scary place. There are perhaps serial killers and or possums lurking in its darkness. And poet Derek C. Brown with the Helio Sequence. I'm your announcer, Elena Passarello, and now, the host of Livewire, Luke Burbank! Hey, thank you so much, Elena Passarello. Thank you, everyone, for tuning in all across the country. We are celebrating National Poetry Month on the show this week. I feel like I don't think of myself as someone who has a particular affinity for poetry, Elena, and yet every time we have a poet on the show either talking about their craft or, or, or presenting some of their poetry. It's some of my favorite moments that we mm-hmm. get as the hosts of this show. You know what I mean? Like, it's so powerful. Yeah, poets are philosophers. They're spiritual leaders. They're masters of language. They're great observers. So it makes sense that they'd be amazing guests. And we have been lucky enough to have some really great poets on the show over the years. We're going to be listening back to some of those appearances coming up. We also wanted to give our... Livewire audience, a a shot at poetic stardom. (laughs) So we asked them, write us a haiku, and we are going to hear some of those haikus, some of those responses coming up a little bit later in the show. First, though, because this is a special episode, we are going to get right to our first guest. His work has appeared in The New Yorker and Plowshares, among other places. The LA Review of Books called his first poetry collection relentless in its examination of how tragedy and trauma become internalized cleaning out the wounds to understand the pain. He is the recipient of a Whiting Award, a Pushcart Prize, tons of other accolades. And just a heads up before we play this interview, he also joined us for what was probably (laughs) the strangest live show that we've ever done. Do you remember this, Elena? Oh, yeah. I'll never forget it. (laughs) The hotel room. (laughs) In Austin, Texas, we took over a hotel room. We had to move a chandelier. I don't think we got permission for that, but it was a just... suite. To be fair, it was a it yes. was a spacious because we had an audience in there. It wasn't we just did. us. <laughs> yeah, we invited folks in. We said we're going to have a, a a live hoot nanny in like whatever it was. I think it was room fourteen fourteen at the Hyatt Regency. <laughs> That's in the script. I didn't just remember that oh. uh, at some <laughs> savant thing. So yeah, we invited people to come hang out in this hotel room, watch us do the show, and Roger Reeves, the poet, was kind enough to come and uh, talk to us. So take a listen to this. It's Roger Reeves, recorded, as I mentioned, in room 1414 at the Hyatt Regency in Austin. This is from back in 2018. Roger, welcome to Livewire. Thank you. Thank you for having me. It's great. I was I was reading your work, which is incredible, and I was kind of I was looking you up. And uh, did I get it right that um, you decided you wanted to be a poet like hours after you had flunked a writing assignment when you were like sixteen? That's a yeah. weird time to decide you want to become yeah, a poet. I, 
you know, it's back in the era of timed essay exams in high school, right? You're taking, I was taking AP history. I'll never forget. And they were like, write about, it was like populism and the Wizard of Oz or something like that. And you had like half an hour and I was like, well, there's a lot to say. And I would just freeze up. But I knew I wanted to write. I knew that was this thing that I wanted to do, but I just couldn't do it in these times. So I got a D on the exam. And uh, I remember going to my journalism teacher and saying, but this is what I want to do. And he was like, writing doesn't happen like that. You know, he, he immediately allayed my fears, which was like, you don't have to be good at a thing. That's why I like writing. You can actually be really bad at it for a very long time <laughs> and can get good at it. Like I always say, you can revise into genius. Most people think you have to be a genius, like you pick up something and you have to like know how to do it right away or have some type of proficiency. But I actually think writing is one of those things where you actually can be really bad at it. And it's really the person that sticks with it. It's less about talent and more about like, can you gut it out? Can you just like look, be ugly, you know, for was, as long was, as possible? Was your early stuff pretty ugly? I mean, yes. not just the D you got on that paper. We all know that was bad. <laughs> I mean, I remember the first metaphor I created in fifth grade. What was it? It was about rain. And I remember we had a, it was fifth grade, we were having a poetry contest, right? And so they were like, we're going to take part of language arts, 10 minutes. So how good can a poem be in 10 minutes? Uh, and you're going to have to write it. And I remember I was like, oh, they were like, it has to be on the theme of spring. So I was like, spring, okay, rain. And so I'm looking at rain hitting the windows and I'm like, rain, rain. Go away. No. I was like, I was like, it's, it's like baby's feet baby's feet in the grass and I just thought that was the most amazing I couldn't get past the line I had like two lines on my poem because I was just like I created a metaphor awesome right and so I just kind of got stuck there which happens with poets a lot of poets get enamored you know with their stuff they'd be like oh that, that's hot right there and it's like Drake you know they just look yeah, at themselves in the right. mirror all the time making music they're in their feelings in their feelings about that poem about that poem how do you know when a poem is done actually for you anyway Mm, conventional answer or non-conventional answer? Let's go non-conventional. It's very hard to tell, but okay, so non-conventional is, I feel a big space. I feel like after I'm done, there's this like space. I always call it a field. And it feels like the poem opens out into this field. Um, and part of the knowing it's, it's done too in some ways is there's things that I don't know what it means quite yet, but I know that all the words are exactly in the right place. Right? I think there's a way in which we always think about the writer is knowing exactly what a poem means and and I think there is that, too. I'm not trying to sort of divorce craft from this, but there's a way in which, for me, it just becomes really peaceful and quiet after a piece. Or sometimes I've taken years where I'll just like, okay, sit this aside for six months. I don't know what it is, right? Six months, two years. And then later I come back and say, oh, I've grown into knowing where that is, right? Sometimes you're writing at the edge of yourself. And so if you're like becoming something else and you're writing at, this might sound abstract, but if you're writing at the edge of who you are and what you know, and you're trying to reach into something you don't know, then often what you're writing is like the future. We're talking to Roger Reeves, uh, a poet and uh, a professor at, uh, at Texas here in Austin. Well, then you're saying that sometimes you write a poem and you don't even know why those particular words are in there. Is it because you like the sound of them? Is it because you like how many syllables they have? Like, how did they get in there if you don't know why they're there? Well, I believe in this thing that I learned from a mentor, which is you don't intend anything for the poem, but you attend to the poem. So what you do is follow it. You follow its sensibility. So if there's a certain sound that the poem is making or a certain rhyme scheme or a certain sense of rhythm, you just follow that. Let the words fall in. Right. And there's these whole drafts of Keats where Keats is writing and he doesn't know what's next, but he puts like ta-da, ta-da, ta-dum. And he keeps and then he hears some more words. And because what you're trying to do is make music. Right. That's like scatting. 
Well, it's improvisational. Does he leave that the in the poem? No, no. You because that would be badass. Well, like so, half the I poem mean, was him being like uh, something I mean, that's later. What TBD. Hip hop brings that into effect. I think that's what jazz brings into effect. I think we see that in country and western, right? Which is sometimes you moan, right? Because there's not words, but there's sounds that sort of convey the emotional landscape that you want at that moment. So I think that to me, what I'm doing is I'm following it. Like sometimes you just see something, you're like, oh, I want to follow that vision, right? Wherever it takes me, I'll let it take me. What do you see uh, poetry's job as being in, you know, in, in modern life? That's a great question. Uh, I think Finally, poetry... I got one. <laughs> <laughs> it's like th- our 700th episode. <laughs> <laughs> no, I, th- I think it's a question that, that we ask of poets in a certain way that we don't ask of fiction writers, I think. We don't ask this of musicians, totally. But I think it is to do many jobs. Right? I think the poet is there to make a good sound at the end of the day. Right? They're there to make, to make beauty, but they're also there to engage the political moment. They're there to engage the sociological moment. They're there to engage the future. Right? I always think about, there's a quote I really love by Adrian Rich, uh, who's passed recently, uh, but was an amazing, amazing American poet. And she said in a poem, Dreamwood, poetry isn't revolution, but it's a way of knowing why it must come. And so I think that the poem in that way is a harbinger of the future, right? So it's there, so it's there to tell us what the future is. It's there to, to delight us. It's there for pleasure. It's there also to, to sometimes bring discomfort or it's there to be our vegetables. Sometimes it's our candy, <laughs> right? Sometimes it's the alcohol, you know, and you want to blame it on the alcohol, you know? So it's like the poem can be anything we need it to be. Right. And we have to allow poets to be all these many things. And I would imagine, and you tell me if I'm wrong, that as the the writer of this poem, you have to be okay with it meaning something different to somebody else than you meant it to be. Like, you're like, I'm writing about this. And they're like, that's exactly like the time when this happened to me. And you're like, that's not what I was thinking. No, it happens all the time. People say, you know, you were saying this in the poem. You say, well, okay. (laughs) You know, or, or this is the thing that I think we should let poems be. And I think we should let all art be this. Art can be confusing, and that is okay. Like, I'm thinking, like, we always want art to, like, have this one-to-one direction, and, like, I know I got off at the L stop at this place. It's like, no, art sometimes, you think you're getting off in Oklahoma and you're Montana. Right. Right? You thought you were engaged in Picasso, and then you wound up, and it was uh, Frida Kahlo. You know, like, we have to allow ourselves as spectators, as people encountering art, to be confused. And as artists, we need to say, that's part of the encounter is confusion, or not knowing. Not know, like, I don't know sometimes what I'm going to do day to day or if like up is down day to day. Welcome to my life. Right? (laughs) So why do we expect art to be like yellow is yellow, tears are tears. You know, like, yeah. This is exactly what I mean. Thesis statement as poem. Come on. This is Livewire from PRX. We are celebrating National Poetry Month this week by playing some of our favorite conversations with our favorite poets over the last few years. Uh, We've got to take a quick break, but when we come back, we will have more with Roger Reeves. Stay with us. Hey, Elena. Hey, Luke. I didn't see you there. It's that time of year again. My seasonal allergies are back. Oh, congratulations. But also, it's our spring member drive, which is happening right now through May 17th. Oh, I like that much more than seasonal allergies. Yeah, if you are not yet a member of LiveWire's League of Extraordinary Listeners, well, now is the time to do it. Why? Well, because this League of Extraordinary Listeners 
uh, is what keeps the lights on over at Livewire Inc., uh, which is definitely not the association that we are part of. I'm probably a 501c3. They don't let me near any of the paperwork mm -hmm. or bookkeeping, and it's really better that way. Yes. Point is, we we are only able to keep doing this show because of support from our members, and we would love it if you could join us in that right now. Plus, there are all kinds of sweet perks, including uh, special discounted tickets to live recordings, on-air shout-outs, exclusive content. Uh, and, Elena, uh, one more thing that, of course, we would not be a self-respecting public radio show if we didn't offer this. If we didn't offer the most iconic public radio swag of all time, a tote bag. True iconic status. Yeah, but it's not just any tote bag. This is like a really good tote bag. It's got a second zipper, an internal zipper. Yes, whatever you want to put in the tote bag, that's your business, okay? What we're mm -hmm. here to talk about is you keeping LiveWire going. So head on over to LiveWireRadio.org to see the various member levels. It does not matter how much you are giving every month to LiveWire. It just matters that you do it because it goes a long way for us. So thank you. Vacations, weddings, birthdays, and reunions. Oh, my, there's so much going on. Get the most out of your spring plans by stocking up on pre-alcohol now. Zbiotics Pre-Alcohol Probiotic Drink is the world's first genetically engineered probiotic. It was invented by PhD scientists to tackle rough mornings after drinking. Here's how it works. When you drink, alcohol gets converted into a toxic byproduct in the gut. It's this byproduct, not dehydration, that's to blame for your rough next day. Zbiotics produces an enzyme to break this byproduct down. Just remember to make Zbiotics your first drink of the night, drink responsibly, and you'll feel your best tomorrow. Go to zbiotics.com slash livewire to get 15% off your first order when you use livewire at checkout. Zbiotics is backed with 100% money back guarantee. So if you're unsatisfied for any reason, they'll refund your money, no questions asked. Remember to head to zbiotics.com slash livewire and use the code livewire at checkout for 15% off. Thank you to Zbiotics for sponsoring this episode and our good times. Welcome back to Livewire. I'm your host, Luke Burbank, here with Elena Passarello. Uh, we are listening back to a conversation with the poet Roger Reeves. We are celebrating National Poetry Month on the show this week. We recorded this back in 2018 in a hotel room in Austin. Don't ask. It was a really fun and weird episode, and we were honored that Roger came by to talk to us. Take a listen to this. You, you brought something you're going to read, a couple yeah. of poems, too. Yeah. So, yeah. Uh, yeah, would you mind sharing that with sure. us? Sure. Uh, this first poem is called Climate Change. And I, I don't know if you remember last December or so, there was this picture of a polar bear. In Austin. In Austin. <laughs> All right. No, it was a polar bear on, on, on ice, and it looked like it was at the end of its life. And I, I became very sort of intrigued by this polar bear and actually did research uh, on the polar bear and what its particular predicament was. People were sort of talking about climate change in this way. And so I was thinking about this polar bear. Um, and also thinking about my father who passed. So this poem is called Climate Change. What is the man now who has lost his tail? What, what is he to do without his heavy bear? I saw it dragging across the ice, its hind legs broken by appetite, like an angry father thrashing the kitchen sink with a kitchen chair leaving a leg there and another there, lugging the rest to a rusted barrel to burn everywhere that will receive this urn and panther carrying its darkness and dead heart across the sky. 
who would interfere with starving? Kill a walrus, seal, whale, interferes too late. His death already eating its after dinner cake while riding atop his blank spine. Death prim, death neat. His bare mouth flooding a trash can finds a skull devoid of meat. Tears. He is learning in his broken fur that he's always been committed to genocide. Cancer or climate change. The withness of his body committed to the epistemology of loss. His hunger, honey smeared across his face. Eyes wrung out like a dish rag, scraped out of scrape, left in an oily puddle at the curb. Let him drift and tremble. Let the scab moss and drying Timothy grease and coffin his wake. His dying slashed across the tundra grass where I twitch. Everywhere I put my bare paws down and starve. Everywhere I am God's unaccounted for pleasure. Behold the future. It is bare. Roger Reeves, everybody. <laughs> that was intense and amazing. Yeah. Um, how long ago did you write that? I started that poem uh, in December, and I wrote sort of a longer draft of it, and I just started taking out lines and taking out and taking out and taking out until I felt like I had mm -hmm. sort of exactly what I wanted, which was a conflation of the father and the bear. Yeah. So I got to know your poetry not by picking up King Me, your amazing debut, but by hearing you read first. I think it was before King Me came out. So my, my experience with you has been sonic mm -hmm. before it was... Yeah, literate, sort of yeah, literate on culture. the page, yeah. right? How do you deal with those two audiences, the eyeball audience and the, the experiential audience? I think uh, the eyeball audience, I'm thinking about line, right? So I'm thinking about music. So for instance, that one is playing with blank verse. So there's a unrhymed iambic pentameter happening throughout. Or the rhymes, what I'm doing is I'm sinking them in the middle of the line. So that if you know anything about poetry, if you're looking just for the pleasure of the poem, the pleasure of the poem is in the sound that's happening just a little off kilter, right? As opposed to allowing it to happen on the end of the line, it's happening in the middle or it's happening slightly to the left of the middle, right? So it allows for... Uh, a sort of difference in play. Um, and then, I mean, if you're really in the literature, then you might like look up like, who else wrote a bear poem? And then you might, you might see some, some similarities. You might look up John Berryman, right? There's a way in which his poems in conversation with like three poets simultaneously. Um, so there's all types of pleasure in this poem. Um, and how I'm thinking about the poem for the reader is, I always think that a first line should snap you out of whatever world you're in and into the world of the poem. And, and make you want to read the next line, right? So I'm always trying to sort of move you through through startling imagery or through a sense of sound, whatever it is, right? Um, arrest you. The goal of the poem is to actually stop you. Mm. The poem wants to disobey time. It is a disobedient sort of machine. It doesn't believe in linear time. It wants to say, no, 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 stop. Stop, stop, stop. Slow down. I know you got one more poem here, Roger. Yeah. So uh, can we hear that one? Sure. Uh, this one's called Children Listen. It turns out, however, that I was deeply mistaken about the end of the world. The body in flames will not be the body in flames, but just a house fire ignored. 
the black sails of that solitary burning boat rubbing along the legs of a lover's flung into an Austin sky by a carousel, the lovers too sick in their love to notice a man drenched in fire on a porch or a child aflame mistaken for a dog, mistaken for a child running to tell of a bomb that did not knock before it entered in Gaza with its glad tidings of abundant joy. In Casimir's, a god is weeping in a window, one golden hand raised above his head as if he slipped on the slick rag of the future. Our human kindnesses, unremarkable as the flies rubbing their legs together while standing on a slice of cantaloupe. Children, you were never meant to be human. You must be the grass. You must grow wildly over the graves. Roger Reeves, everybody, right here on Livewire. That was Roger Reeves, recorded back in 2018 in Austin, Texas. His latest book, which is just out, is Best Barbarian, and you can get it right now. Hey, special thanks this episode to Daniel Brown of Redmond, Washington. Daniel is part of the Livewire member community and is generously supporting us with a donation each month, which we are extremely thankful for because that support is how we're actually able to do the show. Like, no Daniel Brown and folks like Daniel Brown, no Livewire. So thank you, Daniel, for keeping the show going. This is Livewire. Of course, each week we like to ask Livewire listeners a question. And because we are celebrating National Poetry Month this week, we ask the Livewire listeners to write us a haiku. And apparently this was really the like exercise our listeners were waiting for, Elena, because it sounds like there were a lot of responses. What do you see? Yeah, I feel like one of those literary magazines that has <laughs> like like have, has to hire somebody to go through the slush pile because there's a lot of submissions. Well, that's good. What are people saying? How about this one? It's actually anonymously submitted, which is a great poetry tradition. Here's the haiku. Microbes will eat you, or I will. The race is on. Drama in the fridge. <laughs> <laughs> when I heard microbes, I thought that was going in a totally different direction just because of, you know, the sort of what we've been going through the last uh, couple of years. But that's just about basically me not getting to that bag of salad in time. That's I mean, right. has anybody ever finished one of those bags of salad in a timely fashion? If they did, they should write a haiku about it because it would be <laughs> a, a moment to savor. <laughs> uh, that's very clever. Now, just for people who may have forgotten, do you remember the rules around a haiku from a, a syllable standpoint? Syllable standpoint, it's 575. So 575, five. Yeah. okay. All right, what's another haiku that one of our poetically inclined listeners sent in. Oh, I love this one from Melissa. Every line is a sentence, so it's very mm. neat and tidy. Melissa writes, Melting will unveil. Spring promises beginnings. Chin up, buttercup. Oh, <laughs> that nice? that's so like, that's, that's timely and inspirational and... The way that I learned about haikus is that you were always supposed to reference nature in them. Um, uh -huh. So that microbes one totally counts, and so does this one. Yes. 
All right, what's, uh, what's one last haiku that one of the Livewire listeners wanted to submit this week? I sort of feel like this might be the best haiku ever written. Let me know what okay. you think. It's from right. Jason. Jason says, Luke and Elena <laughs> were rock and roll superstars in another life. Please tell me it scans. You're, you're, I can see you counting on your fingers and toes, Elena, please, because that is the best haiku I've ever heard, but I want to know that it fits the form. It's a perfect haiku. And technically it mentions nature because you and I are naturally gifted. So And rocks are part of nature. Oh, that's right. <laughs> so I'm with you. I think that might be the best. What was Jason wrote that? Good yeah. job, listener Jason. All right, you are listening to Livewire from PRX. I'm Luke Burbank here with Elena Passarello. We are celebrating National Poetry Month on the show this week, and we thought what better way to do it than to share the work of Oregon's poet laureate, Anise Mojgani, who is also a longtime friend of Livewire. He's a two-time National Poetry Slam champion. He's the winner of the International World Cup Poetry Slam and his book, The Feather Room, was a 2011 National Book Award nominee. So take a listen to this. It's Anis Mojgani on stage at the Alberta Rose Theater in Portland back in 2019. High five me with your heart. High thousand me with your hearts. I know you have many of them. We all love many things. I love biscuits. I love little pancakes. I love cheeseburgers. I've loved more than just things that I chew with my mouth. I did love my wife. Sometimes I would chew my wife's shoulder in my mouth. Sometimes my wife, she was annoyed by this. But still, sometimes my wife did love me back. Some things that I've loved will never love me back. Random racist upon the street, while your rhetoric may anger me, I still have love for you, though you probably will not love me back. Walrus, I love you. Though were I to be around you, you would probably gore me with your tusks, perhaps. This is not a good example, as the wild unknowing of wild creatures is not necessarily the same as not loving something back, perhaps also because I actually do not love the walrus. But simply mention him here, because there's a small figurine of a walrus on the coffee table as I write this poem. However... I do love the elephant. I love the elephant. However, he too would probably gore me with his tusks. Again, not out of unlove, but perhaps fear. I do not love fear, but I respect him and that he loves me, testing how well I carry the sword of my intent through the land of the Midnight Farm. The land of the Midnight Farm, it is a strange and scary place. There are perhaps serial killers and or possums lurking in its darkness. The serial killer may love me, but in no way that I wish to be loved. Their love may involve the removal of my skin and the wearing of it out to the club. The possum may love me, but I do not love the possum. In fact, I hate the possum solely because of how ugly I find the possum to be. And yes, I realize this is a very shallow reason to dislike something. So I'm trying, possum. I'm trying to not not love you so much and said possibly just be ambivalent to your existence but oh I want to hate you like I hate the thought of bee stings black people and beans I put black people in there just to see if y'all were paying attention <laughs> I freaking love black people 
freaking love white people, though sometimes I find both of them to be trifling. Don't get me wrong. The only mother that I've ever had is black. The only wife that I've ever had is white. But damn, if we humans aren't a trifling animal at times. But still, I love you, you mountains of trifle and futility, of perseverance and lightness, of incessant rowing towards the sun, even while facing it, wondering why there is no forward momentum. Turn around. Look at my many hands holding up my many hearts and a many high five salutation to you, Nina Simone, Paul Newman. So many things in this world I have loved. Rising with the sun, sleeping in late, little pancakes. And even though they didn't turn around once when she got gone, my wife's shoulders. Thank you. That is Anise Mosgani here on Livewire. That was Anise Mosgani, the Oregon Poet Laureate, recorded back in 2019. His most recent book is In the Pockets of Small Gods. You are listening to Livewire from PRX. We are celebrating National Poetry Month on the show this week, if you haven't noticed that it's been fairly poetry heavy Mm. because that's not just like a coincidence. That's because we're celebrating national poetry month. I'm Luke Burbank, by the way, and that's Elena Passarello right over there. Uh, Our next guest is the author of three collections of poetry. Uh, She's also a teacher uh, and has co-hosted the poetry foundations podcast verses for five seasons, along with another live wire favorite, Denez Smith. Um, Take a listen to this. It's our conversation with Franny Choi recorded at the Alberta Rose Theater back in 2019, talking about her poetry collection, Soft Science. Hello. Franny, welcome to the show. Hi, thanks for having me, y'all. Um, I was totally fascinated by this book, Soft Science, but I'm curious, and I hope this isn't an impertinent question right off the top, but how do you recommend, as the person who wrote it, how do you recommend people read this book? Because I read it and I was, I was fascinated. I loved the use of language. I felt like I didn't always know what was going on, but maybe that's not the point. Totally, totally. I mean, I, I think that um, the, the problem is that the way that we're taught how to read poems in school is to read them like a code to crack. Like if you don't get what the thesis statement of the poem is, then you've like gotten a C on the assignment or something, right? But I think that the way that I prefer to think about how to read poems um, is more like encountering a feeling in the poem, encountering the feeling in yourself, and then asking the question like, how did we get here and how do I feel about how we've gotten here? So honestly, if you read, if anybody reads any of my poems and doesn't know what the hell is happening, but just knows that they had a feeling, then great, you A plus on the assignment. Ah, and you actually teach uh, poetry, right? Yes. So, I do. so this is like advice that you're giving to your students as well. So maybe there's at least one generation of people reading poetry from that perspective. There's this weird thing around poetry for a lot of people where they think it's going to be too 
complicated or to something that doesn't feel like it's for them. And maybe it's because of how we've all been programmed to think about it. Yeah, I mean, and also I think it has to do with the kinds of voices that have been privileged in the classroom, you know? Um, for better or for worse, I think maybe for, I don't want to say worse, but maybe for worse, that it's it's been a lot of dead white guys, you know? And, and I think that like, uh, many of the students that are in the classroom are not dead white guys. And so to be able to teach living poets, poets of color, queer and trans poets, femme poets, um, uh, people who come from working class backgrounds, or anyone who comes from the, a similar background as the student population in the room can open up poetry in so many ways. Yeah. Well, speaking of old dead guys, the, uh, <laughs> the touring project comes up a lot in this book. For people who may not be familiar, can you explain what that is exactly and, and why that became such a big component of this book for you? Yeah, so um, the Turing test, for those who are not familiar with that concept, um, is essentially a test to tell computers and humans apart. Basically, uh, you have, a con have conversations with um, computer programs and with humans. If you can't tell who you're talking to, that computer has said to have passed the Turing test, right? Um, and at, for me, as the child of immigrants, um, uh, as a person whose language has been marked as foreign in so many different ways, um, I really related to this concept, you know, I was like, oh yeah, sure, I have also been put to the test um, and have like used my English conversational skills in order to try to convince somebody that they should treat me like a human being, you know? Um, and so uh, I sort of fell in love with the form and ended up writing all these poems that take the form of a Turing test for this book. Um, we're talking to Franny Choi, her latest book is Soft Science. Would you mind reading something from the book? Yeah, sure. I'll read um, the first Turing test poem in the, in the book. What's this called? It's called Turing Test. Okay. <laughs> yes. This is a test to determine if you have consciousness. Do you understand what I am saying? In a bright room, on a bright screen, I watched every mouth duck, duck, roll. I learned to speak from puppets and smoke, orange worms twisted into the army's alphabet, I caught the letters as they fell from my mother's lips. Whirlpool, sword, wolf. I circled countable nouns in my father's papers. Sodium bicarbonate, NBCN1, hippocampus. We stayed up practicing girl, 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 girl until our gums softened. Yes, I can speak your language. I broke that horse myself. Where did you come from? Man comes and puts his hands on artifacts in order to contemplate lineage. You start with what you know, hands, hair, bones, sweat, then move toward what you know you are not, animal, monster, alien, bitch. But some of us are born in orbit. <laughs> so learn to commune with miles of darkness, patterns of dead gods, and quiet, oh, quiet, like you wouldn't believe. Why do you insist on lying? I'm an open book. You can rifle through my pages, undress me anywhere. You can read anything you want. This is how it happened. I was made far away and born here. After all the plants died, after the earth was covered in white, I was born among the stars. I was born in a basement. I was born miles beneath the ocean. I am part machine, part starfish, part citrus, part girl. 
part poltergeist. I rage, and all you see is broken glass, a chair sliding toward the window. Now, what's so hard to believe about that? Wow. Franny Choi, right here on Livewire, reading from Soft Science. Um, do you find that there are things that you can say in poetry and in the written form that you have a hard time saying, like, to people in real life? You're just talking to them? Oh, yeah, all of it. <laughs> I mean, real people in front of you are terrifying, you know? It's way better to just, like, talk to, your, talk to Microsoft Word and tell, tell her about your problems, you know? It's way easier. I mean, yeah, I mean, the, this is the thing is also that, like... In our daily lives, people sort of are looking for the logical answers to things, um, the, the, the ways of answering questions that make sense. And poetry is a space where, you know, somebody could ask, um, how old are you? And then you could talk about being a starfish who was born in space. And that's like a perfectly legitimate answer. Um, and one that comes, maybe comes from some truth of your life and uh -huh. that people kind of just have to sit and respect that, which is great. <laughs> Um, one of the pieces in this book, we're talking to Franny Choi about her book, Soft Science. One of the pieces in this book, uh, you took tweets that had been tweeted at you yeah. and you ran them through Google Translate. <laughs> yeah. And then you turned that into a, a poem. Can you explain the mechanics of how that worked exactly? And also, why were people tweeting at you? Oh, yeah, good question. Um, I mean, the short answer is that, like, I said something online about, like, how racism was, like, bad or whatever, and then people got very upset. Um, it's apparently controversial these days. Whoa. Um, uh, yeah, and so, I mean, I think it ended up on some sort of, like, white supremacist blog party, and then people started targeting me. So and you I started was, getting a bunch of trolling, yeah, basically. Yeah, I got a bunch of trolls in my mentions. Um, it's, it's not a cute feeling. And so, but, but as a poet, I was really fascinated by the language of the, these, like, terrible racist tweets, you know? I think that the language of white supremacist troll Twitter is fascinating. It's awful, but it's fascinating. And so I wanted to engage with that language, but looking at it all day hurt. And so what I ended up doing was putting them through Google Translate into a bunch of languages, then back into English so that they would come out all garbled. And so that I could, I could look at it and engage with this sort of like the material of the text without having it enter my soul, you know? Um. I'm curious what the emotional like journey or experience is for you writing a book like this because it feels, uh, if I would describe it with one word, I would say visceral. So it's you're really pouring yourself into this book. Are you just like drained at the end of the process? Like, what is that like for you to make something like this? You know, I think that the opportunity to take painful experiences and turn them into objects that are maybe a little bit beautiful if you're lucky is such a gift and it's it's like the the safest and most magical way that i know how to engage with the violences of my life and maybe relatedly to take this kind of like nasty material and then own it and empower it and make it yours and triumph through it oh, like totally like to have whatever crap those people spewed at you over Twitter is now like being put into a microphone and sent alongside your name in this beautiful, exciting, yeah, empowered way. Yeah, and people clap for me. Right. You know what I mean? Right. <laughs> like they don't clap for them, yeah. they clap for me. Awesome. Hell yeah. All right, Franny, we know that you know all about 
uh, machines and oh, cyborgs God. and Turing tests. But we wanted to see how you do on silly public radio tests. So we're going to do that right now. This is a little segment we call Let's Get Quizzical. Let's get quizzical. So you use that technique in your book where you sent those horrible tweets through Google Translate and then made poems out of it. We were trying to come up with maybe a more positive version of that experiment. And so we did. We put classic lines of poetry <laughs> through various translations. And then we want you to try to figure out where we ended up with that. So here we go. Question number one. Uh, if we put the famous first line of the poem, This Is Just to Say, by William Carlos Williams, oh, which is, of course, the line is, I have eaten the plums that were in the icebox. We put that through Google Translate from English to Russian to Indonesian <laughs> to Icelandic to Urdu and then back to English. Uh -huh. Great. So did that whole process actually uh, uh, render this result? Don't mouth my ice. <laughs> Or, I eat in the refrigerator, or the purple orbs are in my belly. Oh, man. I like the purple orbs are in my belly the most. Yes. So I'm just going to choose that one. It is a great answer. It is not the right one. Yeah, of course But not. it would be the better answer. I eat in the refrigerator. Yeah, it's good. It's good. What's weird is that the plums just left the conversation. As they are wont to do. Yeah. All right, how about this one? Esperanto. Okay. It was a language, you know, that was supposed to be a common language for everybody on Earth. Um, so it did not work out as a sort of worldwide language, but we have translated a famous line of poetry into Esperanto. Okay. okay? And in Esperanto, it came out as Espero estas la afero con plumage. That is Esperanto. Is that, quoth the raven nevermore by Edgar Allan Poe? To be in love is to touch with a lighter hand by Gwendolyn Brooks, or hope is a thing with feathers by Emily Dickinson. I think it's hope is a thing with feathers. I heard plumage, which seems kind of. Funny. You are so right. Oh my god, that's my. I knew you were gonna like talking. this. There you go. Okay, one last one here. If I were to read to you the following line, Ed Trey awfully say because bay uye Ed Trey onwe I may Eamsdre. Would that be the Pig Latin translation of a famous poem by William Butler Yeats, uh, by Maya Angelou, or by Carl Sandburg? Again, one more time. Idre oftly say, ikuzbe, uye, edre, onwe, ime, imsdre. God, I feel like I just watched the, my life flash before my eyes, and it was very confusing. Uh, I guess I'll say Yeats. I have no idea what you just said. You're absolutely right. Yes. That's tread softly because you tread on my dreams. Great, 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 great. Excellent pig Latin skills. Thank you. Franny Choi, everyone. The book is Soft Science. That was Franny Choi right here on Livewire. Her latest book is Soft Science. Uh, we've got to take a quick break, but don't go anywhere because when we come back, 
We've got an incredible collaboration between the poet, Derek C. Brown, and the band, the Helio Sequence, which you do not want to miss. So stay with us. This is LiveWire. LiveWire is thrilled to be partnering with Portland's own Portal Tea this season. Formerly known as Tea Chai Tay, Portal Tea is the premier tea company in the Pacific Northwest. They make one-of-a-kind handcrafted tea blends like cinnamon churro chai and blueberry cream Earl Grey. Use the code LiveWire, all lowercase, for 20% off at portaltea.co. Welcome back to LiveWire. I'm Luke Burbank here with Elena Passarella. We're celebrating National Poetry Month. And our next guest is a poet who is also a former paratrooper from the 82nd Airborne Division. The New York Times says his poetry will rekindle your faith in the weird, hilarious, shocking, beautiful power of words. Uh, And we think you're going to agree after you hear this performance. It's Derek C. Brown, recorded back in 2014 at the Alberta Rose Theater with musical accompaniment by Portland's own The Helio Sequence. Roy Sullivan. Roy Sullivan still holds the record for being struck by lightning seven times over the span of 20 years and surviving. He left this earth by his own hand, but the lightning could not take him down. I can imagine the first times it found him in his pickup truck at night, remembering that a truck can diffuse lightning, but not if the windows are down. Whoosh. Feeling the first blast of light wash over him fast, like a fire hose gushing electricity, turning him x-ray, hands steaming, hair sizzling, a left hook from the heavens. The second and third times it struck him, it feeling sudden and ridiculous, an impossible stroke of luck, the news trucks showing up, saying, Mr. Lightning Rod, The human conductor, Roy the Lightning Sucker, and priests in their hickey-hiding collars, using his tail as allegory, telling kids that God physically punishes the wicked when we step out of his love. The fourth and fifth time, people distanced themselves from Roy, scared of all the ire he was drawing from the angels and the forces of heaven. Roy was gunpowder. Roy was a marked target. His wife soon also leaving him after she too was struck. The sixth time, no one came. Roy's fingernails black and gray, a scar down each shin. The doctors could not explain why he was not dead. Roy moved through his town like a ghost. No return to normalcy when the world christens you as bad luck. We've all been bad luck. And the seventh time, Roy noticing thunderclouds rolling towards him, daring them to speak. He said, come on, try and take me. Come on, try and take me away. A smile welling up in his burnt molars 
when he felt it start to sprinkle. And then it struck, bullying down, whipping his legs out, going unconscious, dumping the water on his head as he pulled himself through the mud. One reporter returned to the emergency room and said, seven times, Roy, aren't you worried that you've pushed your luck with God? Most people die from one strike. You still going to go outside if there's a storm? And Roy said, I'll still try to. And the reporter said, what was it like? Roy cleared his throat and said, well, it hurt. It really hurt. The lightning and everything else, the people, the leaving, the loneliness. But I'm glad that it happened. I now feel strong. I feel strong the way you feel strong from new love. And I see now that I can't go until I get it all out. I'm so full. I have to get it all out. If God wants it back, he's got to come get it the hard way. My bones are strong, five times stronger than steel, not poetically, but scientifically. We are born with 300 bones and we die with 206. What does this mean? This means there are bone guzzlers in the shadows, all dressed up in no thank yous and get lost. And they will come for you and you must douse them in jars of blood, flowers, yes, vast power, truth stripped, a hard loss, tongue kissing, sorrows bizarre, love at 100,000 beats. Money broke up with me a long time ago. I stopped reading the Bible and I started believing in miracles. Alive is a miracle. Your life is medicine to somebody but you gotta go out and find the sick on your own do i still dance when all the great dance halls around us keep closing down yes yes one dance hall closes down and i can see the streets opening up before me and all the canals freezing over and the rooftops getting ready for my moves and the backyards of night lighting up and the empty bars turning up their music and all the abandoned buildings dressed up like us broken into and lit up like new year's fireworks over iceland like all the fireworks that ever aired over all of iceland and the question comes Will you still dance when no one needs to dance with you? Lightning is striking somewhere all the time. I say wait for it to roll your horizon. Feel your bones ready for the light to burst. I say may your radios be too loud. May you lose your voice singing the road trip eternal. May you stand fast in the storm when there's no shelter. May you dance on the wreckage after dismantling the myth of constant hell. Great power comes at weird times, in strange places. Winston Churchill was born in a lady's toilet during a dance. May you hail power's sudden arrival. May you dance the dance of the unknown. May you get all the hell out. May your heart move you so wild that your love scars your legs. Thank you.
That was the poet Derek C. Brown, recorded way back in 2014 at the Alberta Rose Theater with musical accompaniment by The Helio Sequence. Derek's latest collection, Hello, It Doesn't Matter, is available now. And that is going to do it for this episode of LiveWire. A very, very huge thanks to our guests. Roger Reeves, Anise Mosgani, Franny Choi, Derek C. Brown, and the Helio Sequence. LiveWire is brought to you in part by Alaska Airlines. Laura Haddon is our executive producer. Heather D. Michelle is our executive director. Tim Harkins is our development and marketing director. Our producer and editor is Melanie Sevchenko, and our assistant editor is Trey Hester. A. Walker Spring composes our music. Molly Pettit is our technical director and mixed this show along with Corey Schreppel. Our house sound is by D. Neil Blake. Additional funding provided by the James F. and Marion L. Miller Foundation. Livewire was created by Robin Tenenbaum and Kate Sokoloff. This week, we'd like to thank member Daniel Brown of Redmond, Washington. For more information about our show or how you can listen to our podcast or check out our Best News podcast, head on over to livewireradio.org. I'm Luke Burbank for Elena Passarello and the whole Livewire team. Thanks for listening, and we will see you next week. Wouldn't it be amazing to have a piping hot episode of Livewire delivered right to your heart and ears each week? Well, guess what? That can happen when you subscribe to the Livewire podcast feed and you'll get the joy of surprising conversation every week. So go ahead and do it. It's super easy. You click on the button at the top of your podcast app and bam, you are Livewire subscribed. And If you're still, you know, feeling the love, if you're enjoying the show, hey, maybe you could hook us up and uh, leave us a quick review. That'll help more people find out about Livewire. And thank you.